More 18-month-old children recognise the McDonald's M than know their own last name. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Johan Hari, and this is his second time on the One You Feed podcast. He's the New York Times bestselling author of Chasing the Scream, which has been adapted into a feature film. Johan was twice named Newspaper Journalist of the Year by Amnesty International UK. He's written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and others. And he's a regular panelist on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher, which is a show I love. His new book is Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. Hi, Johan. Welcome to the show. Hey, Eric. It's really good to be back with you. I should just preemptively apologize to your listeners that I'm trying to give up caffeine and um, failing. <laughs> so I, so I basically, I would, I would ideally have caffeine running into my veins on an IV drip 24-7. So if I seem a little bit lower energy than last time you spoke to me, that that is the reason it's not that I'm slowly lapsing into a coma or something. Wonderful. Well, we're thrilled to have you back. We had you on to discuss your book, Chasing the Scream, and I, I loved the book and the conversation. And now we're here to talk about your new book, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. And we'll jump into that in a second, but let's start like we always do with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear and the grandson stops and thinks about it for a second and looks up at his grandfather. And he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. 
So I'd like to start us off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. You know, it's so interesting because I think I think about this parable differently now than I did when we spoke, I guess, three three years ago, because of something I learned in the research for my book. So everyone listening to the show knows that junk food has kind of taken over our diets and made us physically sick, right? I say this with no sense of superiority as someone who basically lived on KFC for like 10 years in my 20s. But what's interesting is there's equally strong evidence that a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. For thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and how you look to other people, you're going to feel terrible, right? From Confucius to Plato, right on down, or right on up. But interestingly, no one had actually scientifically studied this question until an incredible man I got to know called Professor Tim Kasser, who's at um, Knox College in Illinois, who did this really interesting and important research. So it had already been established before Professor Kasser that, that there are basically two kinds of human motivation, right? Put it crudely. Imagine you play the piano. If you play the piano in the morning because you love it and it gives you joy, that's an intrinsic reason to play the piano. You're not doing it to get anything out of it. You're doing it because that experience is the experience you want to have. Okay, now imagine you play the piano, you know, because your parents are really pressuring you to be a piano maestro or in a dive bar that you can't stand to make the rent or to impress a woman. I don't know, maybe there's some piano fetishist out there, right? That would be an (laughs) extrinsic reason to play the piano, right? You're not doing it for the thing itself. You're doing it to get something out of it, right? Something external, something external to the experience. Now, obviously, we're, we're all a mixture of internal and external motivations. But Professor Kasser showed a few really interesting things. One is, As a culture, we have become much more driven by these external, what I think of as junk values. You can see, I mean, he gives lots of evidence, but even something as trivial as, you know, go to a music concert now, and you'll notice about half the people will just spend the whole time not being present at the concert, but just filming it on their phones. A video they will never watch, right? Because if you want to watch Beyonce, there's great clips on, on YouTube. Why are they doing that? They're doing that to display that they're having the experience in order to be envied by other people. Right? They, 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 rather than having the experience, they're externally displaying that they're having the experience. Um, so Professor Kasser showed, firstly, that we've all become much more driven by these external values. And secondly, and I think really importantly, um, the more you are driven by these external values, these junk values, the more you're driven by how you look to other people, how much money you've got, your status, the more you will become depressed and anxious. It's a quite powerful effect. It's been shown in over two dozen studies now. And I think it relates to the parable on which your, your show is built in a in a really interesting way, because I think of it not so much in terms of individuals, but as a culture, as a society, what have we chosen to feed, Right. Um, And you can see there's an interesting little experiment that was done in the the late 70s. It's a a really simple experiment. You you take a bunch of five-year-olds and you split them into two groups. The first group is shown two advertisements for a specific toy, whatever the equivalent of like Peppa Pig was in 1978. I can't remember what it was. Peppa Pig. That must be an English thing. I've never heard of Peppa Pig. (laughs) Or like Dora the Explorer or whatever. (laughs) Okay. um, All the kids in my life are slightly too old now for me to (laughs) be up to date with these references. Teletubbies, whatever, right? And the second group of kids, kids are split into two groups. First group is shown two advertisements for a toy. Second group is shown no advertisements. And then at the end, all the kids are told, okay, kids, you've got a choice now. You can either play 
with a nice boy who doesn't have any toys, or you can play with a nasty boy who's got the toy that was in the advertisement. The kids who haven't seen the advertisement choose the nice boy who doesn't have any toys. The kids who've seen just two advertisements choose the nasty boy who's got the toy. What does that tell you? Just two advertisements primed these kids to choose an inanimate lump of plastic over the possibility of kindness and connection. Everyone listening to your show has seen more than two advertisements today, right? More, more, I mean, we're so immersed in this machinery from the moment we're born that feeds the extrinsic parts of us, right? That tells us the way to be happy is to buy stuff, to consume. More 18-month-old children recognize the McDonald's M than know their own last name, right? That's, that's, how, that's how deeply we're immersed in this machinery. And as Professor Cassa put it to me, we, we, we're raised from the moment we're born in a machinery that's designed to get us to neglect what's good about life, right? That's designed to get us to live in this extrinsic, hollow way, driven by these junk values. So in a sense, I'm interested in, obviously, there's a degree to which individuals make some choices within the system, and we can choose what to feed or not to feed. But to me, what's more interesting is, how did we build and why maintain this machinery that feeds the worst parts of us, that's designed, you know, the whole point of advertising is to make us feel inadequate, right? That's that's what it's designed to do until you buy the product. And then it's got to be very careful, you've got to quite quickly feel inadequate again, right? I think a lot about you know, where I grew up, um, you know, kind of normal suburb of London, you know, there's a couple I know who live there still, who are people I love, people close to me. And I go and see them, they they live so purely by these values, these, these consumerist values. So they work really hard to buy this stuff that they see in advertisements and they display it on Instagram and on Facebook and people comment going, OMG, so jealous. And then they're puzzled that they don't feel good. And they think, oh, it's just that I didn't buy the right thing. So they work even harder. They buy another junk thing they don't need and they display that. And they're constantly puzzled by their own despair, their own pain, because although they don't put it quite like this, there's an implicit sense in what I'm doing everything I'm meant to do, right? Why do I feel so bad? There's a sense I'm doing everything I'm meant to do. Why do I feel so bad? And so that was the kind of first thing that came to mind in a very long answer in response to the parable you, you read. Yeah, well, I really identified with that section of the book about junk values. And I also related with, you know, later in the book, you sort of reference back to that and you say, you know what? I've been told how bad these are for us. I understand it. I've done all the research. And yet I feel pulled by them. And I just find that to be so true in my case. It's really the reason that I try and stay away from any sort of commercial TV, because I fall prey to in a very subtle way. It's not like I suddenly am like, well, I need that Budweiser, right? But what I start mm. to think is what's important is how do I look? How does my girlfriend look? You know, am I on a beach? Am I, you know, I, I, I just suddenly internalize those things in a, in a very um, stronger way than I would think. And I just kind of noticed it about myself. And I, I really register with, with what you're saying with that. That's so true what you're saying, Eric, because... Before advertising sells us any particular product, it sells us the idea that your problems can be solved through buying, right? That's the kind of under message. And you can see how that 
often sold in this kind of self-affirmation, you know, even our shampoo bottles tell us you're worth it, right? So you can see how this happens. There's an absolutely implicit approach to life embedded in it. And as Professor Kasser says, our motivation is fragile, right? We all have intrinsic motives and we all have extrinsic junk motives. And of course you need both, right? Of course. But he said very easily extrinsic motives can crowd out the more meaningful motives and it and it sounds strange because on one level it's banal it's a cliche to say look no one listening to your show is going to lie on their deathbed and think about all the things they bought right they will think about moments of meaning and connection but we are immersed in a propaganda system that is designed to get us to neglect that that insight and it's not the only thing that's going on but this is one of the reasons why we have a depression and anxiety epidemic um, and Professor Cassell, along with a, an academic called Jill Twenge, showed that the amount of GDP in the US that is spent on advertising correlates with teenage anxiety. So as GDP spending on advertising goes up, teenage anxiety goes up. As it goes down, teenage anxiety goes down. Now, I don't want to be clear, this is one of many causes of depression and anxiety I write about in the book, but I do think it's an important one. I, think it's, I mean, I actually, there's lots of things in the book that are relevant to the parable you tell, but the that's just one thing. Yep. So let's back up a little bit to the idea of the book. And then I want to talk about depression in general, because your book is basically saying that, you know what, a lot of us have been sold a story that says the reason we're depressed is because there's something chemically wrong in our brain. And so the primary thing that a lot of people are given is an antidepressant for that. And, and what you're saying is that, by and large, the biggest contributor to our depression are these nine different causes that you name, and that our brains and our genes and the chemicals are a small part of that, or even to put it slightly different, the horse has already left the barn with these other causes, right? And then the chemical changes come along with that. And I really want to explore that because that did a couple things to me. One is I agree with so much of it wholeheartedly. And I fought with it all through the book. And I think you did too. Mm. And I think that's interesting because like you, I have been on antidepressants for a long time. I'm in the process of weaning off of some right now. But I would say by and large, I think they have been a positive thing for me. And so right mm. out of the gate, I want to make sure that we say this because I know you say it too. We, this is not a conversation that is telling anybody, no matter what the rest of what you hear is, that you should get off your medicine, that medicine is bad, any of that. That's not what we're going to be saying. What we're going to be saying is we need to look more holistically at depression and anxiety and not have all the focus on that one little thing. And then people can draw their own conclusions. But a lot of the criticism I've seen about your book is people who think that's what you're saying. And, and I agree with you, you are in no way saying that. But I just want to be really clear with it up front with our audience. No, no, I think that's true. And, and to be fair to the people who say that, they, they do admit they haven't read the book. So, right. know, the, the, yep. yeah. But, but I think to go to the wider thing, uh, the wider question you're asking, which is really important. So there were these two mysteries that were really haunting me that made me write this book. And actually, it's a sign of how, like you say, how much I struggled with this how afraid I was to write this, to go and investigate this, that actually I wanted to write this book seven years ago. 
Uh, and I started, in fact, started writing it three and a half years ago. And the reason why is I figured it would be easier for me to write a book about the war on drugs that required me to go and spend time with hitmen for the Mexican drug cartels than it would be to look into this story about my own depression. That's how afraid I was of it. And so there were these two mysteries that were really hanging over me. That The first was, I'm 39 years old. Every single year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety has increased in the United States and across most of the developed world. And I wanted to understand why, what, what, what's going on here, right? And um, the second thing is, as you alluded to before, when I was a teenager, I, I went to my doctor, I explained that I had this feeling like pain was kind of bleeding out of me and I couldn't control it or regulate it. And my doctor told me a story that I now know um, did not match the best science then and does not match the best science now. He said, we know why people feel this way. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains, makes them feel good. Some people are naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. All we need to do is give you this drug. In, in my case, it was um, it's called Paxil in the United States, and you'll be all right. So I started taking Paxil, and I experienced a really significant boost in my mood. My depression went away. A couple of months later... Maybe three three months later, I started to feel the sense of pain coming back. I went back to my doctor. He said I didn't give you a high enough dose. He gave me a high dose. Again, I felt a significant boost. Again, this feeling of pain came back, and I was really in this cycle until I was taking the maximum possible dose that you're legally allowed to take for, for 13 years, at the end of which I was still depressed, and I was experiencing all sorts of horrible side effects. And what happened to me fit into this wider picture. So I went on this long journey for the book. I traveled over 40,000 miles. I wanted to meet the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and what's also, and also just people with very different perspectives, from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to, to a city in Brazil where they banned advertising to see if that would make people feel better, to a lab in Baltimore where they're giving people psilocybin, the active component in magic mushrooms, to see if that would help. And I think, as you said, that obviously I learned a huge number of things, but to me, the, the kind of core of it is... Until I went to my doctor when I was a teenager, I thought my depression was all in my head, meaning I was just weak, I needed to man up. And then for the next 13 years, I thought my causes of my depression were all in my head, meaning it was a chemical imbalance in my brain. But what I learned is there's scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are indeed biological. They're very real and they're important to talk about. They're your genes and there are real changes in your brain that happen. I don't think they should be described as a chemical imbalance for reasons we can talk about. But the other seven causes are not in our heads. They're actually factors in the way we live. And once you understand them, that opens up very different kinds of antidepressant that are about solving those problems, which should be offered alongside, not instead of, alongside chemical antidepressants as a way of radically expanding the menu of options and expanding our understanding of what's happening to us. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. 
Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk about how I've dealt with depression because in some ways it is spot on with what you do and in one other way it is very, very different. And I just think it's an interesting conversation. So I have long believed that taking a pill for depression is not going to do the job sufficiently. And so I've long had a series of things that I felt like I need to do to treat depression in my life. And it's interesting because they line up very much in some ways with your different causes and reconnections. I just sort of stumbled into them over time. I've got like a list of about 12 or 15 things that I keep track of every day. Now, I don't do all 12 or 15 every day. My goal is just to do a good number of them consistently. And I know that that really, really makes the difference in whether I'm depressed or not. So on one hand, totally on board. And, you know, I'm a living proof that trying to work with these causes makes a big difference. So that's where total alignment. And then there's this other way that I deal with it, which is very, very different. And that is that when I inevitably feel like I hit a cycle of feeling a little bit more depressed. So it almost feels physical to me. It almost just feels like I just can feel it come on and I'm not really interested in anything. The things that I normally love, I don't care about. You know, I can't think of a book to read. I can't think of a song to listen to. And so what I've learned to do over time with that is almost the exact opposite of look for causes. I've come to treat that and I don't I'm not saying this is right by any stretch. I'm just talking about kind of what I've done and and I've talked about this on the show that in those moments where it feels like a brief sort of cycle through something, I've learned to treat it like having a cold. And what I've done is I've just sort of said, "You know what? Let me make sure I'm doing the things that are on my list. Let me, you know, let me make sure I'm doing the things that I know help my depression." And then what I'm not going to do is fall into an existential crisis about whether the direction of my life is correct or all of that because of a small cycle of depression. So on one hand, I treat it very actively. And on the other hand, so I would say I treat the thing as a whole very aggressively and very actively. And then I treat individual incidents, which are usually a couple days, almost exactly the opposite by going, you know what? I'm not going to make a big fuss out of this. It comes, it goes, not a big deal. I'm not going to examine all of my life. And I just think it's interesting that, that I've kind of ended up in that spot with it after having worked with it for so many years. That's a really interesting and, and eloquent way of putting it. I think that's exactly right about when you change the wider framework, there will still, of course, be fluctuations and how you cope with that. So it makes me think about one of the causes and one of the solutions that I write about in Lost Connections. So we are the loneliest culture there has ever been. 
you know, there's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you can call on in a crisis? And when they started doing the study years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. There are more Americans who have nobody to turn to than any other option when things go wrong. I was thinking about this a lot in the last few weeks because one of the people who taught me so much about this, an amazing man called Professor John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago, sadly just died. He was the, he wasn't an old man. It's a terrible loss. He was, he was the leading expert in the world on loneliness. Professor Cassiopo proved a few really important things. One of them was for a human being, being acutely lonely is as stressful. It releases as much of the stress hormone cortisol as being punched in the face by a stranger. And a lot of his work was about, well, why, why is that? What's going on there? And he said to me, you know, why do we exist? One of the reasons that you and I are able to have this conversation, Eric, is because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. In a lot of cases, they often weren't faster than the animals they took down. But they were much better at banding together into groups and cooperating. And just like bees evolved to need a hive, humans evolved to need a tribe. And if you think about those circumstances, if you were separated from the tribe in the circumstances where we evolved, you were depressed and anxious for a really good reason, right? You were flooded with stress for a really good reason. You were about to die, probably. It was a very powerful signal to get back to the tribe. We are the first humans ever to try to live without tribes. It's making us feel terrible. And Professor Cassiopo proved this was a major factor in causing our depression epidemic. One of the heroes of my book is a, a wonderful doctor called Sam Everington. As you can tell from my weird Downton Abbey voice, I, I'm British, although I spend a lot of time in the US. And um, Sam is a, is a doctor in a poor part of East London where I lived for a long time. And Sam was really uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him with depression and anxiety. And like me, he's not blanketly opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they do play a good role for some people. But he could just see, firstly, that his Patients were often depressed for perfectly good reasons, like being really lonely. And secondly, that while the antidepressants could take the edge off that for some people, which had value, for most of his patients, it was not solving the problem. So he decided to pioneer a different approach. One day, a woman came to him called Lisa Cunningham. Lisa had been shut away in her home with crippling depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to prescribe something else. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was known as Dog Shit Alley, which gives you a sense of what it was like. It backed onto a park. <laughs> and Sam said to Lisa, what I'd like to do is come and turn up twice a week. I'm going to turn out and support you. There'll be a group of depressed and anxious people. We're going to turn Dog Shit Alley into something good, right? First meeting they had, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But a couple of things happened. First thing was, Lisa discovered as the weeks went on, they had something to talk about that wasn't how terrible they felt. Most of the time, we offer depressed people drugs or we give them the opportunity to go and talk about their pain, both of which have real value. But here they decided something else completely different. They decided they were going to learn gardening. Yeah. They started to put their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. And there's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a very powerful antidepressant. We can talk about that if you want. Second thing that happened is they began to form a tribe and they did what human beings do when we form tribes. They started to solve each other's problems. To give you the most extreme example, there was a guy in the program who was sleeping on the local public bus at night because he'd been thrown out of his home. People in the group were like, well, of course you're depressed if you're sleeping on a bus. Right. They started pressuring the local authority to get him a home. They succeeded. It was the first time they'd done something 
for someone else in years. It made them feel great. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There's a study in Norway of a very similar program, which is part of a growing body of evidence, that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants in reducing depression. I think for a kind of obvious reason, it's something I saw all over the world, from Sydney to San Francisco to Sao Paulo. The best and most effective responses to depression were the ones that deal with the reasons why we're so depressed and anxious in the first place. Now, to relate that to what you're saying, it's not that within that program, Lisa didn't have bad days. She did have bad days. But the difference between having a bad day in a context where you are held and valued and having a bad day in a context when you are isolated and alone is all the difference in the world. Yeah. And that's just one of the causes of depression anxiety I'm writing about. So I think you're right that n certainly no one is suggesting, or maybe there are some people, but they're foolish, that, you know, if we deal with these massive social and psychological factors that are driving up depression and anxiety, that there will still not be profound human distress. Of course there will be. Um, that, that, you know, there are tragedies inherent to the human condition, right? You will die. Yes. I will die. We will be forgotten. Everyone we know will die and be forgotten. Right? <laughs> inherent, you know, there are some things that are just inherently tragic and sad about being a human being that don't go away. But what we can do is deal with many of these Envir deep environmental factors that are driving up this epidemic. Yeah, I think that's so true. And what you just said there about the way that they connected over the garden, I think is really important. I mean, you made a good point there that they didn't go to the garden to talk about their trouble. And we had a woman on, I don't know if you're familiar with her, her name's Emily White, and she wrote a book called Loneliness. And then her next book was mm -hmm. about how she dealt with it by reconnecting to the world. And that was one of her big points was that you know, we think that the type of friendship that's going to help us, you know, is the one that it's all about dealing with our problems, et cetera, et cetera. And what she realized, you know, kind of to your point was that what was really helpful to her was to form these friendships that did something other than just that. There wasn't so much pressure on them to be like the thing that solves a problem. But, you know, loneliness is such a big thing. And it's something I wrestle with on this show a little bit because, you know, I've exposed that science that, you know, you know, being lonely is worse than smoking. Right. And I get some reactions from people, which is like, okay, that's freaking me out because I'm lonely and I don't know what to do. And so it's one of those things that I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about, like, what's the role of something like this, a show that's in a virtual world with helping people to be less lonely. And I just think it, it is such a pervasive problem. And I agree with you that, there's a big societal issue here. And yet for folks that are wrestling with it, we also need to find our way through it while we hope to address the bigger societal issues. A lot of the things I learned for Lost Connections, I learned from experts, I learned from scientists. And there were lots of places where things fell into place emotionally for me. And there's one place that I went back to again and again. If it's okay, I'll tell your listeners the story of this place because I think it, yeah. it tells us so much. So in the summer of 2011, on a big anonymous housing project in Berlin, a woman put a sign in her window. She lived on the ground floor. The sign said something like, I got a notice saying I'm going to be evicted next Thursday, so on Wednesday night I'm going to kill myself. She was a woman in her early 60s. Her name was Nuria Chengish. She, 
She was a Turkish German woman, very religious. She wore a hijab. And this was a housing project in a kind of poor part of Berlin where basically three kinds of people lived, relatively recent Muslim immigrants, gay people and punk squatters. As you, as you can imagine, these three groups looked at each other with a lot of incomprehension <laughs> and uh, no one really knew anyone, right? No one, like a big anonymous housing project like one anywhere in the Western world, no one knew anyone, no one knew who this woman was. But people saw the sign in her window and they started to knock on her door and they said, do you need any help? And she said, fuck you, I don't want any help, I'm going to kill myself. And people started talking outside her, her corridor and, you know, they were all kind of pissed off because their rents had been rising and lots of people had been evicted. And one of them had an idea. He'd actually been watching on the news Tahrir Square. That was the summer of the Egyptian Revolution. And there was a big thoroughfare that goes into the centre of Berlin, into Mitte, uh, that goes through this housing project, centre of this housing project. And then this idea, they said, if we just block the road for a day uh, on a Saturday and we wheel Nuria out, the media will come. There'll be a bit of a fuss. They'll probably let her stay. Maybe there'll be a bit of pressure to keep her rents down. So they did it. They wheeled Nuria out. She was like, well, I'm going to kill myself anyway. I may as well let them put me in the middle of the street. Um, and the media did come and there were news reports about her. And then it got to the end of the day and the media went home and the police came and they said, OK, take it down. You've had your fun. Take it down. And the residents, the people who live in this place, it's called Cotty, said, well, hang on a minute. You haven't told Nuria she gets to stay. And actually... We want a rent freeze for all of us. So we'll take this down when we've been told we're getting a rent freeze. But of course, they knew the moment they took this barricade down, the police would come and take it away. So one of my favorite people at Cotty, a woman called Tanya Gartner, who's, she's one of the punk squatters. She she wears a tiny miniskirt even in Berlin winters. Tanya is, is hardcore. She had in her apartment a uh, klaxon, you know, one of those things you use at soccer matches to make noises. She went and got it and she said, OK, what we're going to do. We can drop a timetable to man this barricade. And when the police come to take it down, let off the klaxon and we'll all come down from our apartments and we'll all stop them, right? So people who would never have met, who didn't know each other, start to sign up to man this barricade. So Tanya, in her tiny miniskirt, was given, I think it was the Thursday night shift, with Nuria, very religious um, Muslim in a, in a full hijab, right? And the first nights they sat there, it was super awkward. They're like, we've got nothing to talk about. This person is nothing like me. But as the nights went on, they started talking to each other. They discovered they had something incredibly similar in common. Nuria had come to Berlin when she was 17 years old with her two children from a village in Turkey. And her job was to earn enough money to send back the, the money for her husband to come. But after she'd been in Berlin for a year, she got word from home that her husband had died. She told Tanya something she'd never told anyone. She'd always told people that her husband died of a heart attack. Actually, he died of TB, which was regarded as a disease of poverty and was quite shameful at that time. Tanya told Nuria something she didn't talk about very often. She had come to Cotty when she was 15. She'd been thrown out of her middle-class home. She'd come there. She'd lived in a squat with a bunch of other punks. She got pregnant when she was 15. They'd actually realised they both had had young children and been really lost in this place um, when, they, when they were themselves children. This was happening all over Cotty. There was a young lad called Mehmet who um, was a Turkish-German lad, really into hip-hop, kept being nearly thrown out of school because they said he had ADHD. He got paired with this elderly, grumpy, white German who loved Stalin and said he didn't believe in direct action. Um, who, and they got talking. They, they were had a shift together and the old white guy started helping him with his homework. There were these pairings, these 
connections that were happening across the street from this housing project there's a gay club called zudblock uh, which is run by a man i love called richard strauss and to give you a sense of what this gay club is like the previous place that richard ran was called cafe anal <laughs> so it's pretty <laughs> uncompromising i always thought you would have a sandwich with cafe anal but anyway um, you know <laughs> pretty uncompromising gay people and you know when they first opened this club um, you know, it's, it's a lot of religious Muslims in this area. People, some people were really outraged. Some people had smashed the windows. When the protest began, this gay club, Zudblock, donated all of their um, furniture. They said, to, you know, you guys should have your meetings in our club. Come whenever you want. And, and at first, even the kind of left-wing people in, in Cotty were like, look, we're not going to get these very religious Muslims to come and have meetings underneath, you know, the poster for fisting night, right? But actually, <laughs> they did start meeting there. As one of the Muslim women there said to me, we all realized we had to take these small steps to get to understand each other. After the protest had been going on for about six months, one day, a guy turned up called Tunkai. And when you, when you meet Tunkai, he was in his early 50s at the time. When you meet Tunkai, it's clear he's got some cognitive difficulties. He'd been living homeless. And he started saying, can I do anything to help here? And they started asking him to help. And quite quickly, all three groups, the Muslims, the gays and the punks loved him, right? He's got a lovely, caring energy. By this time, they had actually turned the thing blocking the street into a permanent structure. Um, so they started saying to, to Tunkai, well, why don't you sleep here? We don't want you sleeping on the streets. It's, you know, Berlin, it can get cold in the fall and the winter. So he started sleeping there. He became a much beloved kind of staple of the protest camp. And then after he'd been there for about a year, one day the police came to inspect. They would do this every now and then. And Tunkai doesn't like it when people argue. Uh, he thought the police were arguing. So he went to try to hug one of the officers, but they thought he was attacking them. So they arrested him. That was when it was discovered. Tunkai had been shut away in a psychiatric hospital, often in an actual padded cell for 20 years. And he had escaped and been lived on the streets for a few months and then found his way to Cotty. So the police took him back to the psychiatric hospital in Charlottenburg, right the other side of Berlin. At which point the entire Cotty protest movement turned itself into a kind of free Tunkai movement. And they descended on this psychiatric hospital at the other side of the city. And, you know, the psychiatrists are just like, what is this? There's suddenly there's all these like Muslims, gays and punks demanding a release of one of their patients. They'd never seen anything like this. And I remember Uli, one of the the women at Cotty saying, you know, she, she said to the protesters, to the sorry, to the psychiatrists, but he doesn't belong with you. You don't love him. He he belongs with us. We love him. And I remember thinking, how many of us, if we were carted away, would have hundreds of people descending on this place saying, no, this person belongs with us. No, we love this person. It took them a long time, but they got Tunkai back. He, he, he still lives there. And you know, many things happen at Cotty that I write about in Lost Connections. I mean, obviously, the obvious headline is they got a rent freeze for their entire housing project. They then launched a referendum initiative um, because you, you have to get a certain number of signatures. It got the largest number of written signatures in the history of the city of Berlin. Um, but, you know, when I went to go and see Nuria, the woman who started the protest, the last time I ever saw Nuria, I remember, you know, she said to me, look, I'm really glad I got to stay in my apartment. That's great. But I gained so much more than that. I was surrounded by these amazing people all along and I never knew. I remember another another woman, Neriman, who took part in the protest, another Turkish German woman said to me, when I grew up in, in Turkey, 
I called my whole village home. And I came to live in the Western world and I learned that what you're meant to call home is just your four walls. And then this whole protest began. And now I call this whole place and all these people my home. And she said she realized that at some level she had been homeless all the time she'd been living in the Western world, that we are at some level homeless. The human beings need to feel we belong. And our sense of home in this culture is not big enough to meet our sense of belonging. And there's something about Cotty, and I think they think I'm crazy because I would go there every three months, just burst into tears and leave again at one time. I remember one of them, <laughs> Sandy, said to me, your hand, do you think you maybe have allergies? Your eyes water very much. But, um, the, you know, I remember thinking what was so clear to me in Cotty is those people, think about how distressed they were, you know. Nuria was suicidal. A Tunkai was shut away in a padded cell. Mehmet, that young lad, was constantly being nearly thrown out of school because they said he had ADHD. They did not need to be drugged. They needed to be together. The problems that seem insoluble when you are isolated and alone and told that life is about buying shit and screaming at each other through screens, those problems are insoluble when you are in that framework. But when you are part of a tribe and you reorient your values, you can begin to find solutions that you couldn't find when you were alone. I remember Tanya saying to me outside that gay club, she said to me one day, you know, when you're all alone and you feel like shit, you think there's something wrong with you. But what happened is we came out of our corner crying and we started to fight and we realized we were surrounded by so many other people who feel the same way. And when you do that, you realize how strong you can be. And I, I really felt that so acutely with them that this is just below the surface. So those people listening to you who were hearing those messages about loneliness and saying this freaks me out because I, because you can feel the truth of it. Remember, you are surrounded by people who feel that. And it takes very little, it takes very little for that to come to the surface, for, for that hunger to come to the surface. It didn't take long for people in Cotty to really see what they had and what they were developing. Do you see what I mean as a response to what you're saying? Absolutely. And that story is incredible. And it reminds me of a slightly more prosaic version of this that has happened over and over and over and over. And it's um, 12-step programs. And I have some concerns with 12-step with programs and some of the things that, you know, they're not perfect by any stretch. They have saved my life a couple times. But what I'm struck by is that all across the world, on any given day, you have this thing where people emerge from, I'm all alone in this thing, into a group of people who all have, have the same situation, and, and lives change dramatically. And I often think that, you know, a 12-step program would say, you know, God is the reason this happens. I actually think the fact that you go into that group is the reason that it happens. But it's it's another pointer towards this can really happen and does happen. It's not an insoluble problem. Well, the unnatural thing is not that people connect and form tribes. The unnatural thing is that yeah. we don't, right? That, the, that actually this th these are our deepest impulses as a species, right? And you're right, I agree with you, both, you know, there are some aspects of 12 Steps theology that I don't think are for everyone, but I think the model of connection and support that is embedded in 12 Steps programs is profound and beautiful. And the fact that, you know, any city anyone in this is listening to, you know, you could go to an AA meeting tonight, you go to an AA, and no one will ask you for any money, and you will be welcomed and treated with care and respect. That's, a, yeah. that's an extraordinary 
thing. And, and you know, there are many dark aspects of human nature, of course, but that is much truer to our nature and who we are as a species than sitting alone, you know, buying shit on your laptop. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, the book is so deep and there's nine causes and we're going to get to almost, we're going to get to so very little of it. We're running, we're running up on time here soon. You and I are going to talk a little bit afterwards in the post-show conversation. Um, listeners, you've heard the drill before. Uh, supporters of the show can, can hear those over on Patreon. But I want to just touch on a couple of things because I think the book can be summed up really, really well in one line that you wrote. And it's that Depression is itself a form of grief for all the connections we need but don't have. Yeah, this comes from this thing that was discovered in the 1970s about depression that was so explosive that it had to be kind of brushed under the carpet. So in the 1970s, the APA, the American Psychological Association, decided for the first time to standardize how depression was diagnosed in the United States. So they drew up a list of 10 symptoms of depression that are pretty obvious things that you could guess, crying a lot, feeling worthless. And they sent them out to doctors all over the country in the the kind of psychiatric Bible, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And they said to doctors, if any of your patients experience more than five of these symptoms for more than two weeks, diagnose them as depressed, as mentally ill, do what you can to help them. So doctors start using this. But sometime later, Doctors and psychiatrists come back and they're like, hey, we've got a bit of a problem here. If we use this guideline, we should be diagnosing every grieving person as depressed because this is what happens to you when someone you love dies. So the APA get together and they're like, well, that's really not what we meant. (laughs) That's not what we intended. Um, So they, they invented something that became known as the grief loophole, right? So what they said is, Okay, use these 10 symptoms to diagnose people as depressed unless someone they love has died in the last year, in which case they're not mentally ill. It's a perfectly understandable response. Don't diagnose them. It's okay. So doctors started using that. But 
that started to beg a kind of question that lots of doctors asked, which was, well, hang on a minute. We're meant to be telling people that depression is just a brain disease that you identify on a checklist, except there's one situation and only one situation in life where it's perfectly understandable response. Well, why is that the only situation where it's okay to respond this way and understandable? Why not if you lose your job? Why not if you lose your house? Why not if you're stuck in a job you hate for the next 40 years? You can all imagine, you can imagine hundreds of situations. But that, as Dr. Joanne Cassiatore, who's one of the real experts on this and an absolutely extraordinary person who lost her own daughter when Cheyenne in childbirth, as, as, as Dr. Cassiatore put it to me, that insight would require a whole system overhaul. It would require us to think about the whole life and not just the isolated symptoms or not try to boil it down to being just a problem in the person's brain. The system isn't built to do that. There are lots of good psychiatrists and many admirable and indeed heroic psychiatrists, but the system we've built of psychiatry is not designed to do that, right? Um, and, And so what happened is the APA got rid of the grief exception. Don't exist anymore. So now... If your baby dies at 10 a.m., you can be diagnosed that morning. If they say to you, well, have you had these symptoms for the last two weeks? Have you been upset? Have you been... Yeah, well, then they can diagnose you straight away. In fact, as Dr. Cassiatore has shown, 9% of grieving parents are diagnosed and drugged in the first 48 hours after their child dies. And what she said is, that tells us something really profound, right? Because most people instinctively know that just drugging someone for grief, that grief is not an irrational pathology. Grief is a tribute to the person we have loved, Right. We grieve because we have loved. And and she argues that actually drugging grieving parents disrupts the grieving process in ways that are really damaging. But but I think you can see this in a wider context, as Dr. Cassiatore herself, she's really a remarkable person, applies it in a, in a wider context, which is that, you know, the worst thing for me about what my doctor told me, that it was just a chemical imbalance in my brain, apart from the fact that it's not true, that it's just a chemical imbalance in people's brains, the worst thing is... What that says to people is your pain is meaningless. It's like a glitch in a computer program. But what the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world, and so many of the people who've looked at the real evidence have been trying to tell us is your pain has meaning. You're not a machine with broken parts when you're depressed. You're not crazy. You're not broken. You're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love, support, and help to get those 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 deeper needs met. And I think, as you say, as you quote from the book, it's not a coincidence that depression and grief have the same symptoms. I think partly what depression is, is a form of grief for your own needs not being met. And I think that tells us something really profound about how we've been approaching it in the wrong way. You know, one of, it's another, one of the other moments when emotionally it fell into place for me was when I went to interview this um, South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield. He's a wonderful person. Derek happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when chemical antidepressants were first introduced in that country. And the local Cambodian doctors were like, what are these drugs? They hadn't heard of them. What is an antidepressant? And Derek explained. And they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields, and one day he stood on a landmine and he got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial limb, and he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's extremely painful to work in the rice field, work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. I'm imagining it was traumatic for very obvious reasons. The guy started to cry all day, didn't want to get out of bed, classic depression. So they said to Derek, 
that's when we gave him an antidepressant. They said, well, he said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They saw that his pain made sense. They figured precisely because they listened to the source of the pain, they began to look for solutions. They figured if we bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be so distressed. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression had gone. They said to Derek, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, as I say, those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively what the World Health Organization has been trying to tell us. They understood that your pain has meaning. We evolved a pain impulse for a reason, right? I mean, as a trivial example, you know, as a European who spends a lot of my time in the US, I never fail to be surprised by the existence of indigestion treatments like Pepto-Bismol, right, which just don't exist anywhere in Europe. I've never seen them anywhere in Europe. And I remember the first time I was, oh, yeah, we don't have them. There's no such thing. I mean, maybe they're available. I've never seen, I've never seen anyone take one. I've never seen anyone selling them. Um, because the reaction of a European when you see an indigestion treatment is to say, well, well, hang on a minute. Indigestion isn't a malfunction. It's a necessary signal from your body that you're eating too fast. The solution to indigestion is to eat more slowly, right? Because that's a signal that you're eating too much, you're eating too fast, you're going to make yourself sick, you're going to upset your stomach. Now, that's a trivial example because indigestion is infinitely less agonizing than depression, which is the worst thing I've ever gone through. But you can see that principle. We have pain impulses for a reason, right? They are not malfunctions. And the fact that one in five Americans is going to take a psychiatric drug in their lifetime and Average white male life expectancy just fell for the first time in the history of the American Republic apart from the Civil War. These are signals that are telling us something. And what they're telling us is not that everyone mysteriously just had a serotonin imbalance in their brains, right? There are real things that happen in depressed people's brains, of course. Those things sometimes make it harder to get out of depression. That is true. And I go through that in the book, of course. We've been told this ludicrously reductive explanation that to me, the problem is not so much with the drugs, because the drugs have some benefit for some people, they do some harm to some people, we can have a complex and, and nuanced debate about that. But to me, the really harmful thing is what the story does to people. What that story does is it tells you that your pain doesn't mean anything. And what that does is it cuts you off from following that pain to its source, both you as an individual and us as, more importantly, us as a society and solving the things that are hurting us so much. I agree completely. Like I said early on, for me, you know, what I've I've described my treating depression is I kind of like throw the, the kitchen sink at it, right? I recognized it's a there's a bunch of things that are a factor in it for me and 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 I need to treat all those different things. And I think that's what you're you're pointing to so much is that, you know, and I think that's so true that that our pain is very often a signal about something. It's like guilt. Guilt used in the proper way is a signal that we're living against what our values are. Now, this can spiral into shame. We can feel guilty about things that other people tell us, but at its core, right? In a well-functioning human, guilt tells us like, I don't feel good about that. And so it's a signal. And so to just ignore it is troublesome. And I, and I agree with you. And I think what we've done, I, th I think that's really well put, but I, I, I don't think ignoring it, I don't think as a culture we've ignored it. I think it's worse. As a culture, we've pathologized yeah. it. As a culture, we've said that it's a sign of craziness or malfunction in the individual. 
if we'd ignored it, that'd be bad enough. What we've done is, is even worse than ignoring it. Um, yeah, we've pathologized it. And, and to me, that's the most, uh, and, and that, that's the most, the most damaging thing of all, because it makes people then mistrust the impulse. It makes them mistrust the signal. Yep. It makes them systematically misread the signal as a culture. Um, and I think if we had listened to these signals about depression, we could have dealt with some of these problems before it became, for example, the opioid crisis. And I've spent time in places like Monadnock, New Hampshire, which are at the absolute epicenter of the opioid crisis, where what's happening there, the heart of what's happening there, the the, the core of it, I mean, there are many things going on, but and as you know, it's a subject of my previous book, Chasing the Screen, which was about addiction. But the core of that is the core of addiction is about trying not to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. Right? It's not a coincidence the places with the highest levels of opioid use have the highest levels of suicide and have the highest level of antidepressant prescriptions. These are ways of trying to not be present in an unbearably painful reality. And if we had listened to these signals sooner, we wouldn't be having these extreme distress signals. And I have to say, I don't think we would be having the current president either. You know, I remember in the run-up to the 2016 election, I was with this fascinating group who I'm writing about for a different project who do um, deep canvassing work to try to persuade voters. And we were on this street in, in uh, Cleveland, in a, a part of Cleveland called Slavic City, it's really haunted me as my memory of the election. We were on this long street, and it was this devastated street, like kind of like Detroit without the poetry of the ruins. And about a third of the houses had been abandoned. A third had actually been demolished, and the third still had people living in them, often behind barbed wire. And we knocked on one door, and there was this woman who we got talking to. I, I would have guessed from looking at her was 60. I discovered from the conversation she was actually the same age as me. I was 37 at the time. And... We're having this conversation, and she was quite articulate, very, very angry. She wasn't uh, going to vote for Trump. She was going to not vote at all, um, but really furious. And at one point, she made this verbal slip. She was talking about what the area used to be like for her parents and grandparents, and she meant to say, when I was young. But what she actually said is, when I was alive. And it really... She didn't, she didn't notice she'd made that verbal slip, but it really knocked me back. And when I hear people on my side, and you can guess my politics, when I hear people on my side talking about Trump voters or people who didn't vote as stupid or racist or just pathologizing the signal they've sent out, and which, don't get me wrong, I think is obviously a disastrous signal. I'm, as you can guess what I think about that. But to pathologize the signal is, means you can't hear what they're saying, right? You can't hear what needs to be heard. If we're going to deal with this, if we're going to deal with this deep pain, um, and and the, the fact that we have so many kind of alarm signals going off, you know, the election of very extreme political choices across the world, um, one in five Americans taking a psychiatric drug, falling white male life expectancy for the first time in history of the republic, you know, these, these are interconnected signals that we've built a culture that doesn't meet people's underlying psychological needs in all sorts of crucial ways. But we can deal with that. There are lots of ways back from that. I, I've seen them in practice. I've seen how they work. I report the last third of the book is about solutions that are not kind of hypothetical solutions, but places I went, 
people I interviewed, science I saw, which show ways back for, and we've only touched on a very small number of the causes and very few of the solutions. But I think that is, to me, the core of it is it doesn't have to, to be this way, but to but to find your way out of this pain, you have to understand the problem differently. And I wish, in a way, the book is the letter I wish someone, you know, it's like a letter to my teenage self. This is the, These are the things I wish someone had told me when I walked into that doctor's surgery in such a state of pain and pain and distress that, that, that I was not told, rather than the, the story I was told, which set me off on a path away from the source of my pain and away from understanding these yep, things. I agree. It's a beautiful way to put it. We're out of time here, but I will encourage listeners to absolutely check out the book. It has so many important points and really summarizes, I think, a lot of things that this show has been about in in sort of one place. And so I thank you so much for you know, and for taking the time to come on the show and, and oh, for uh, writing the book. And my publishers always, I should say, my publishers always tell me to, I always feel like a kind of advertising person in one of those bad 1950s movies when I do this. But they told me, I have to say this at the end of interviews, which is, if anyone would like any more information about where they can get the book or the audiobook, if they would like to know what a range of people have said about the book, from Hillary Clinton to Tucker Carlson to Ariana Huffington to Russell Brand... If you would like to take a quiz to see how much you know about the real causes of depression and anxiety, or if you'd like to hear audio of any of the people we've been talking about, like those amazing people in Berlin, you can go to www.thelostconnections.com. It's not lostconnections.com because it turns out there's a band called Lost Connections. I don't know what to do about. Um, and um, yeah, you could, um, yeah, thelostconnections.com. And also on that site, you can see where to follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Yep. And I'll absolutely put links to that site in the show notes that go along with the show. So thank you so much. Uh, a pleasure, as always, to talk with you. Uh, totally okay. my pleasure, Eric. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.